about to interview someone. Oh boy, nice setup. Who are you interviewing? Uh, his name's Bill Granara. He's a. I told you about it. This is the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Is that you? Yes, hi. How are you? Come on in. Do you need anything uh, before we get started? Because I said you're on a tight schedule. You can give me a, get me a dry martini with three dollars. <laughs> I have to admit, I've got some whiskey in the desk, but it's a little early. I've got a long day. All right. Come on in. We'll shut the door. Sure. I remember Sicily as agony steers in my soul, remembrances of her, an abode for the pleasures of my youth, now vacated once inhabited by the noblest of people. For I have been banished from paradise, and I long to tell you its story. Were it not for the saltiness of tears, I would imagine my tears as her rivers. I laughed at 20 out of my youthful passion, now I cry at 60 for her crimes. Do not exacerbate my faults on your own account, since God never ceases to forgive them. The footage you're hearing is from the year 2000. It appeared in a documentary by Cirrus Films about the island of Favignana off the coast of Sicily and its tuna fishermen. You can find a link on our website. The refrain they're singing, Aya Mola, essentially means, O Lord. This chant is in fact a prayer that God will deliver a bountiful catch. The songs of Sicilian fishermen are legendary, and this tradition goes back centuries. We know this because Ayamola comes from Arabic, and Arabic hasn't been spoken in Sicily since the 13th century. In this episode of Ottoman History Podcast, we're exploring the history of Muslim Sicily with Professor Bill Granara. He's the author of a new book entitled Narrating Muslim Sicily, and he teaches Arabic at Harvard University, where we recorded in spring of 2020. <laughs> Ibn 
I made a mistake in one of the case endings early on, but that's okay. You get, <laughs> okay. This, you get the sense of it. I'll include that so that the listeners know that you, you yeah. caught the mistake. You I caught the mistake. The poem you heard, entitled I Remember Sicily, read first in English and then in Arabic by Professor Granara, is an iconic work of literature about Muslim Sicily. There was a professor at Georgetown, God rest his soul, Irfan Jahid, who every time he saw me, he would recite these six lines to me. It was written by Ibn Hamdis. I'm actually working on a book now by a fellow by the name of Ibn Hamdis, a Saqili. And when he was 24 years old, he left the island at the time when the, one of the dynasties breaks up and the island is split among three warlords. And again, for those uh, for those of us who've studied Muslim Spain, it's the, 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 the petty kings, the Maluka Tawa'if. It's the same, same kind of a situation. And he left and he went to the city of Sfacus, which is now on the, in the toast, coast of Tunisia. He settled his family and then he went to Spain to go to become a court poet um, in Seville when these courts were, were quite in bloom, culturally in bloom. He lived to be 80 years old. He left the island at 24 until the, the moment he died, the very last poem at the age of 80 when he writes an elegy to his daughter, he mentions Sicily. Sicily never leaves him. So he's become in some ways the voice, the sole voice or the most articulate voice of Sicily. He never went back and uh, his poetry makes many references to the guilt that he felt because he really didn't have to leave. Um, it's not, it was, he was an exile that wasn't forced exile, it wasn't a political exile, it was more of a collective exile. Uh, but he left because he wanted to become a court poet and he knew he couldn't do it there. You might expect Ibn Hamdis's poetry to be colored with nostalgia given his life experience. In fact, Arab authors began to write the same way about Muslim Spain after the Reconquista, which resulted in the forced conversion or expulsion of Muslims and Jews from the Iberian Peninsula. What was more surprising is that some of what Ibn Hamdis missed wasn't really what you would normally associate with Muslim social life. It's, it's something called a wine song, and I'm going to read you a, a couple of um, passages here. Okay. He's talking about um, he and his buddies going off on a hunt is what, what men did. A lot of the social, homosocial bonding that was going on in the naval world was to go yeah. out and do a hunt. And he starts to talk about the wine, and he says, A bright chestnut which makes the drinker exuberant when he partakes of it round after round. The cup ladles out the wine as it rushes from its jug, which you would imagine it to be its corral. He's using a word kumate, which is used for a horse or a wine, to give you the pun. And then he talks about um, going into the monastery. And the monastery and the nuns are very important in medieval Islamic Europe. A cloistered nun unlocked her monastery, and we were her visitors of the night. The fragrance of a liqueur, and he uses the word kahwa, which is the modern word for coffee. The fragrance of a liqueur brought us to her, one that revealed to your nose her secrets. Only he who would make a trip to Darin or to her house could know the victory of finding true musk. 
It was as though her musk sacks were two earthen jugs whose pitch was buried within. I placed my silver on her scale, and from the jug she poured her gold. We became betrothed to four of her daughters so that the pleasures might deflower her virgins. And then in a later passage, the songstresses strumming their instruments have made silent the movements of distress. One wraps her arm around the neck of her lute, another one kisses her flute. A dancing girl, leg outstretched, like the hand that plays the, her tambourine. So here you have poetic verses in which the Muslims of Sicily, this is kind of long after the battle is fought and the Mujahideen and put their arms away. This is what Sicily had become in many ways in the imaginative of, of Muslims who see this as a, some kind of a paradise of cross-cultural, cross-religious playground in some mm -hmm. ways. We, we don't know for sure whether he wrote this when he was 24 or not, because unfortunately, the anthology of poetry that he left, that we have extant, is 370 poems, and none of it is um, um, dated. dated, except if he's mentioning a certain ruler that he mm. panegyrizes, then we know. If Ibn Hamdis wrote about Muslim Sicily as a paradise, it certainly was not a paradise totally full of virtue. In his wine song, he and his fellow Sicilian Muslims aren't necessarily being good Muslims, and the Christian nuns they encounter aren't really being good Christian nuns either. And this trope about Sicily is actually something that Arab authors from outside the island picked up on. Uh, one of the things that I want to read for you is um, one of the very few primary sources that we have. It was by a fellow by the name of Ibn Hawqal, and mm -hmm. he um, was visiting. He was on one of these ships. He's from Baghdad, and he left from Spain, and he was coming to Sicily. And he was quite critical of Sicily, and he has a journal of about 30 pages people talked about why is he's critical and my my theory is is that when he got there he was expecting this kind of jihad you know hollywood movie where everybody was doing nothing but fighting christian enemy and he was found out that things were a little bit different mm. and and if i can read you uh just a piece here that's kind read, of humorous read what you want. First of all, he says that most of the Sicilians, the, and he's talking about Muslim Sicilians, were dim-witted because they ate raw onions. Like, it was just everything they ate, they ate raw onions, and this affects the brain. I don't think I have that here. But he says, there are quite a few rabat on the coastline. The rabat were these monasteries, these fortified monasteries where people prayed and fought. There are quite a few rabat on the coastline, full of freeloaders and scoundrels and renegades, both old and young, poor and ignorant. These people would pretend to perform their prostration standing up in order to steal money given to charity or to defame honorable women. Most of them were pimps and perverts. They sought refuge there because they had no place to go. They are low life and ramble. Then he says, there are about 300 teachers, such a number is not to be found. They are good for nothing because they run away from attack and they reject holy war even though their country is in Christian territory and faces the enemy. In their country, holy war is still underway and the call to arms still goes on uh, just as it has ever since Sicily was first conquered. Their leaders have not given up on it. And if they make a call to arms, the only ones in the country who would not ignore it would be those who were trying to save their own necks are trying to curry favor with the sultan. 
So here you have a Muslim, an outside Muslim, coming into Sicily, and he's, again, quite confused by what he's seeing on the ground. There's a later scene where he goes into a, the outskirts of Palermo, and he's, he's visiting men who have Christian wives, and the daughters are Christian, and the boys are, um, you know, not doing anything. He, he says that they're not observing uh, Muslim ritual, whether they're not praying or whether the boys are not circumcised or any of the things mm -hmm. that are supposed to be done, we don't know for sure. But the point that he's making is is that the Muslims, the Arabs and the Muslims of Sicily are not behaving the way they should be. And again, I, one has to read this into a context of, a, of an indigenous Muslim culture that's coming into its own and, and being part of that long Sicilian continuum that starts with the Phoenicians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Visigoths, et cetera, et cetera, whatever they are. I mean, parts of that actually reminded me of what a northern Italian would have said about Sicily Absolutely. during the 19th century or like today. So Absolutely. I thought that was very interesting. One of the constants in the history of Sicily seems to be that it often gets a bad rap. But actually, the messiness of social life on the island and the continuum Professor Granara referred to are often celebrated for various reasons in our present. In the second part of our podcast, we're going to delve deeper into the history of Muslim Sicily, its rise and its fall, and some of the contradictions that arise from narratives of coexistence and conflict, and we'll ask Professor Granara how we can resolve these conflicting narratives. I'm Chris Grayton. You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. Stay tuned. Oh, the history of Muslim Sicily begins in uh, 827, and it uh, lasts until about 1250. 827 is the year in which the autonomous Aglabid uh, dynasty, um, the first, uh, uh, um, I, I shouldn't say, yeah, the first dynasty in Islamic history to gain autonomy from the Caliphate in Baghdad, um, they uh, launched a jihad against um, the Byzantines uh, who were ruling Sicily. Um, this follows uh, 70 or 80 years of somewhat of some kind of contestation, piracy, uh, privateering uh, that was going across the central Mediterranean. And uh, the story goes is that a renegade uh, Greek admiral named Euphemius uh, wanted to rebel against the Byzantine uh, uh, government in Constantinople crossed the Mediterranean and asked the Arabs to help. He did it with uh, false information, or we think false information, that the Byzantines were holding Muslim prisoners against a treaty that was an illegal holding. So anyway, what started out as an adventure in some ways uh, to rescue these Muslims uh, ended up as being a conquest, the beginning of a conquest. So it took the Muslims basically 70 to 80 years before they took full control over the island of Sicily. Um, there was a constant influx of, of troops and then eventually manpower coming over from what we now know as Tunisia or central Maghreb. And um, with the capture of Palermo four years after they landed, slowly there was the kind of the evolution, if you'd like, of a Muslim society, first in the cities and then in the... Uh, in the interior. 
that's what started uh, Muslim Sicily. As I say before, I'm not exactly, we don't know for sure how, what were the expectations were of the Aglubids across the, of the, uh, in, in, in Tunisia, or Ifriqiya, if, what it was called at the time. But uh, eventually this conquest uh, turned into a colony, and then the colony turned into a kind of a, an autonomous uh, uh, entity, if you'd like, of Islam. And of course, it ended in the reign of Frederick II. Four hundred years had done a lot during that time. Muslims lost sovereignty of the island. The Normans, through Roger the First and Roger the Second, came in and took it over. And then, by the time Frederick came in the early 13th century, the first decades of the 13th century, the demographics had changed against the Muslims. The vast majority, or the overwhelming majority, of us uh, Sicilians were now Lombards or Christians from the north, mm. from the mainland of Italy. So, uh, and there was a lot of pressure from the Vatican. History had changed. The reconquest, the Christian reconquest, had taken over much of Spain. They took back Malta, for instance. So the Mediterranean was turning now into, or was going into a Christian, or a Christian, or a right. European kind of a sovereignty. And what uh, Frederick did, a very wise move, although history was against him in terms of years, uh, he took as many of the or the Muslims and the, the Jews that were on the island of Sicily, and he brought them up to Puglia, where he wanted to create this massive agro-business, mm. um, tapping into the expertise of uh, Muslims and, uh, and the Jews. But by this point, I mean, the demographics were changing radically. We do have, if I can just jump forward to, mm -hmm. as a closure, there is an anecdote by a historian, Abu Fida, who was a, a Memluk, an early Memluk historian, who tells the story of, a, of an ambassador, a guy by the name of Jalal al-Din ibn Wasil, who was sent by the Memluks from Baybars in Cairo to go to Puglia and to work out some kind of a deal with uh, Frederick's son, Manfred. And there's a wonderful description of him going to Puglia and as the guest of Manfred and talking about going to the little town of Lucera where Muslims were the majority and there was a mosque and there was a Friday prayer. So this is in some ways maybe the last snapshot of Muslim Sicily as we knew it. Uh, but eventually they just, um, with, with migrations and emigrations and with the force of the, the reconquest and the Inquisition, etc., etc., the Arabs of Sicily and the Jews of Sicily, in some ways you could say that as well, kind of just were folded into what was becoming right, a modern so you have a, a long period of the sort of emirate of Sicily That's and then a while under Norman rule, in which Muslims uh, and Christians are living under a Christian right. king, and then eventually the expulsion, and then this brief coda of the diaspora, sort of the Sicilian diaspora in Lucera. It's about a century and a half when Arabs held sovereignty, um, but it was another maybe 80 years, 90 years, in which Arabic culture survived. Arabic language, Arab sociology, Arabs themselves were on the island. Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Over the centuries, it's welcomed migrants, traders, pirates, and invaders from all over the region, 
Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, and Byzantines all controlled the island at some point before the Arab conquest of the 9th century. Under Arab rule, Sicily rose to prominence. The capital of Palermo had a population in the hundreds of thousands at its height. It was one of the largest cities in Europe. But by the end of the 13th century, much of the Arab cultural legacy had been displaced. In Europe, nobody gave much thought to the memory of Muslim Sicily. And what remains in Arabic was often written in the aftermath of its fall. Actually, the, the scriptures, if you'd like, of um, Muslim Sicilian historiography were brought together by a character by the name of Michele Amari, who was born in 1800 and uh, died in 1890 or something like that. I forgot the exact year. And he was a Palermitan um, uh, from a good Palermitan family, and he was getting very much involved in the anti-Bourbon movement you know, the Risorgimento movement of uh, Italy in the 19th century, and he was kicked out of, uh, of, of Sicily. He ended up in Paris and started studying with uh, Orientalists, and he put together two texts. One of them is called the Biblioteca Arabo Siculo, which is a kind of a compendium of all the documents that were known at the time, manuscripts or printed material and he extracted all the chapters on Sicily and put it in one volume and then later between the last decades of his life he put together a master history called Storia dei Musulmani di Sicilia so these are the foundational texts of of, of um, Muslim Sicily since then things have come as well but um, not much not much and as, and as you rightly say a lot of these sources the bulk of them um, deal with later historians who go back and study Muslim Sicily after the fall. So there is a writing of Muslim Sicily by Arabs that, that, that address the fact that it rose and then it fell. Scholars working on Muslim Sicily face a paltry source base. But what we do know reveals that a massive transformation occurred. The Arabs from central, uh, the, the Mediterranean, from Ifriqiya, when they came, they brought technology. So the technology of, of mm -hmm. dams, building dams, and salt mining, and things of that nature. What also what they did is in building their urban centers, they were able to create something in the way of a kind of a eastern model where you have an agricultural zone that's connected to the urban centers that also have ports. So what the Arabs were able to do is to expand on their agriculture. And of course, Sicily is often equated with being a monocultural country with, gra with grain. Mm -hmm. It was the granary of the Roman Empire. And then when the Arabs left, it became a wheat-growing um, country again, or a region again. Mm -hmm. But what they did is they built um, citrus uh, fruit, uh, we know that in the Arab period there was salting, so we probably think of cheese and, 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 and salted meats. So our prosciutto today probably comes and the salamis and the mortadellas probably come back to that particular period where the Arabs knew how to salt. Um, there was a also a lot of import and export. So um, we know that cheese was uh, wheels of cheese, which was the food of ships. And of shipping, a lot of the cheese was produced in, in Sicily. Citrus, again, was very important. And also being the largest Mediterranean port and, and really an area of contestation from the Phoenicians all the way 
to recent disputes between Tunisia and Italy over the tuna. I mean, that part of the world has always been uh, contested, but it was also an area for trade um, or, or bartering and, and going back and forth. The, we know that the Muslims were, um, of Sicily had uh, the tiraz, the textile industry, um, so that they also were able to manufacture um, uh, not only um, basic clothing, but also luxury clothing that was exported elsewhere. There was woodwork uh, that was done, wooden um, uh, arts and crafts that were done, and also shipbuilding was very big in that particular period because there was a lot of trees in the area. Uh, we know also that um, there are records that tell us that uh, uh, shucked almonds um, and that was something that the Jews of Muslim Sicily were very much involved in because almonds are very important for Ramadan, almond milk for, for holidays and celebrations, and the almond trees and the pistachio trees in mm. Sicily were very important. They were brought in, by the way, by the Arabs, and they were planted there. So, so the, the material culture became one in which there were urban centers, uh, there were marketplaces that produced and moved these goods back and forth. But also these were, as I said before, what was important was that they were also part of the agricultural sector. And what, what the Muslims did do was to get rid of the old latifondo, uh, big, huge, feudal um, uh, you know, farms right. that were owned by warlords and you had tenants. They broke that up. So there it's was a, small, a real small yeah, land. There was there was um, and of course as with with the fact that you have to deal with mujahideen when soldiers come and fight in jihad according to Islamic law you're you're supposed to get a portion of the land. Of course that 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 apportioning probably ended fairly quickly because there's not a whole lot of land. Mm -hmm. um, but the land had to be distributed. It had to be used. And once you stop being a fighter, and you've got kids who are not necessarily going into the war anymore, you've got to give them jobs to do. So um, this is, I think, how the economy grew. Mm -hmm. um, but it was important, again, a strong agricultural, strong fishing, you know, ports, um, and, and, and again, ties to the urban centers, Palermo, Syracuse, Syracuse, Mazara, Trapani. These were places where we see crafts, arts, artisans and craftsmen, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And what about like the... Um Art and literary culture is this well, like a... that came a little later because mm -hmm. again in the first century was a, a what you guys would call in the Ottomans a ghazi, uh, right? This was like a kind of frontier space. Yeah, at the it beginning. was a thug, it was a fun, a, a, a place of frontier. Jihad never ended. I mean, we'll talk about Kami Vince in a second, but um, there was love and there was war and peace and there was mm -hmm. assimilation, but there was war well, every day. It was it was part of the the fabric of things. So the first, I would say that the first inklings, if you'd like, or the first sprouting of, of Arabo-Islamic culture was one in which mosques had to be built and schools had to be built. And schools had to teach Arabic to new converts or, you know, religious schools in which, you know, the children of the fighters had to learn their Quran and Hadith. So in many ways you could say that Sicilian Arab-Muslim culture was replicated what was going on in North Africa, what was going on in Spain, so it was more or less traditional. One of the things that's quite interesting, and we have to jump forward, is that a lot of scholars were very interested in mm -hmm. what we'd call today sophisticated linguistics. 
not just philology, but linguistics. Mm -hmm. And there's a text that was done um, right before the Normans left. It was on Tathqif Alisan. It was a, a treatise on mistakes that Arabs make in Sicily is a, on the frontier. And they had to, a lot of it was descriptive sociolinguistics, how classes taught, what spoke, and what mistakes or what things they did and didn't do. So the study of language and the linguistic arts or the language arts grew to a great extent in Sicily. So a lot of philology and a lot of linguistics. And of course, Quran, Hadith, all of the, all the uh, major uh, subjects. Did Arabic become the predominant language in Muslim Arabic Sicily? at one point became, yeah, the predominant language. And we even have texts in which Greek scribes were writing. There's one what is called the Chronicle of Cambridge, the Chronica de Cambridge. Mm -hmm. It's actually a, um, a, a, an anonymous um, script that was a, a, it was a court record of what was going on. It was a chronicle. And um, the, it's funny to read it because I've given it to some of my students in third year Arabic and right away they say, oh, there's a mistake here. Um, what the guy did, it was the, the, he must have been a Greek and he must have been writing what he heard. Um, and uh, for instance, the, the, the way that the subject and the predicate go and stuff like that, mm -hmm. he was making basic mistakes. Mm -hmm. But he had a lot of facts down. I mean, this person was killed, this, there was a drought that year, et cetera, et cetera. But um, by and large, what we know of the poetry, and poetry is what I work on mm -hmm. as well, poetry was, was very much part of the main. The Muslims of Sicily and the Muslims of Spain, they love poetry. Poetry had become a popular art form. Um, but at the same time, it was conservative in its adherence to the, to the classics. It's evident that the Norman conquest was a turning point for Muslim Sicily and a big part of the reason why Islam and Arabic culture disappeared from the island. But it's difficult to characterize exactly how that played out, because the Normans were initially quite flexible. It was the genius of Roger II when he conquered the island of Sicily, that he took the best of Arab, Muslim, and Byzantine Greek, and whatever was there of the Latins. Um, of course, these people were much more um, sophisticated and much more cultured than the, the Northern Europeans at the time. Um, and he fused something like what the Ottomans did later on. They took yeah. the best of, of all these different uh, uh, cultures and they made a kind of a uh, a, a civiliz they built their civilization, what historians later have called the Norman Synthesis. Some argue that the Norman Synthesis is a big part of the reason why traces of Muslim life on Sicily were erased. Muslim Sicily isn't as identifiable or as visible as, for instance, Muslim Spain is today because eventually it was synthesized. It was, uh, the Normans were not hostile they were quite welcoming. How people choose to talk about this past has a lot to do with concerns of the present. In part three of our podcast, we'll spend more time with Bill Granara thinking about the memory of Muslim Sicily and its legacy in both Italy and the Arab world.
A Monreale convennero artisti e artigiani scelti tra i migliori dell'epoca, che diedero vita a un cantiere davvero internazionale. Bizantini e Veneti, Arabi, Pisani e Pugliesi, Provenzali, Campani. E questo non poteva accadere se non in Sicilia, naturale punto d'incontro di Europa, Asia e Africa. Una pluralità di stili e di linguaggi si fonde in perfetta armonia, in compiuto equilibrio di civiltà. And a later history when the, um, there's a, a record of the downfall of Sicily and mm -hmm. they're talking about the divisions within one family. There's a, a fratricide that goes on once a man, one, once the local ruler is, leaves office, if we can use that word. And then he's talking about the Normans now. The Normans, may God curse them, took full control of the island in 1091. Roger I was sole ruler of Sicily and populated it with Byzantines and Normans as well as Muslims. He left in the hands of no one person either a public bath, a shop, a mill, or a public oven. Roger died sometime after 1097. He was succeeded by his son, also named Roger, this is Roger II, who followed the customs of Muslim rulers. He maintained at his court aides de champ, chamberlains, equerries, and palace guards, which had not been the custom of Norman rulers. He also established a court of grievances, which is a Muslim institution, where the oppressed could take their complaints and seek justice even against his own. Arab authors sometimes remembered Roger II for the respect he showed towards the Muslim population of Sicily but the dynamic was more complex. There will always be, in the Norman period, a tension between a kind of an enlightened uh, Norman palace or a Norman court, and then what's going on on the ground with these kinds of mainlanders coming in and taking over. During the Norman period, Sicily is often presented as a utopia of coexistence. Granara thinks that's too simplistic. You know, again, what my book tried to do was to kind of depart from the historiography of Muslim Sicily that was established, or that continued along the paradigms that Michele Amati set um, in the 19th century. And what I'm trying to do here is look at anecdotes and kind of look at some of the, the, the confusion and the contradictions about it as well. Um, this question of convivencia has been very important in, in the way that medieval um, historians have looked back at, especially in Spain and then in Sicily. Spain was much bigger than Sicily. Sicily mm -hmm. was much shorter yeah. and it was, it was again, uh, its Arabic culture kind of eventually disappeared or vanished into the Norman um, uh, synthesis. But this question of um, the interfaith, this kind of idea of an interfaith utopia that people have gone to look at, uh, Maria Rosa Menocal's The Ornament of the World probably um, symbolizes the most romantic reading of that convivencia. It's quite rich and it's, there, there's a lot to it, but in fact, uh, there, there, it, it wasn't that way all the time. There was both war and peace. And people did have lives in which they uh, they communed with with uh, you know throughout you know outside their religion. We have 
places like bathhouses and souks and marketplaces where Muslims and Jews and Christians and all kinds of different people interacted on a day-to-day basis. So life continued and and there was a lot of cross-cultural influences and stuff, but there was also war and war was a fact of life and jihad was still um, very much um, a kind of an institution, if you'd like, that kept people together, that, that kept, kept people employed Young men, if they needed to, to you know, prosper in some way, they always had, uh, they could find, uh, I mean, this happens in a lot of cultures. It's not just in medieval Islamic culture. It's a, it's a cultural question. So there is an interface. There's cross-cultural contact. There's cross-cultural influence. There's cross-cultural cohabitation. And then there's cross-cultural conflict. There's religious right. conflict. But what's extraordinary about it is that places like Spain and Sicily established contact zones that didn't exist elsewhere, especially in Europe. So, for instance, how many medieval Brits are, you know, and in in, in French or people from the north or even northern Italy would be in daily, daily, con- daily contact with Muslims and Muslim culture. So there were massive amounts of contact zones in which people actually got to know each other. It, it, you know, but then also the question is, is what role the church eventually played? And this is something that uh, with the Inquisition, these institutions that were brought to kind of rub out any influences that they had. Uh, because people did convert. They converted for a lot of different reasons. They converted because of love. You know, uh, um, you, you would convert because of, of financial, you know, betterment or, or even you just might like the sound of the idhan and your neighbor and you decide that you want to go become a Muslim. I, we know that there are stories in Muslim Sicily descriptions where Christian women used to go dress like Muslim women because they loved the gowns and the, and the jewelry and the different kinds of things that they wore. So there's, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot there, there. There's, class there's a lot and, of yeah. mundane kind of everyday living mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that, that existed. And you wouldn't find that in Scandinavia or northern France or in, in, you know, in Germany or in England at that particular time. Sure. And I think that's why Muslim Sicily, although it's much less known than Andalusia, is like a source of fascination for a lot of people who want to learn more about the pre-modern period. But your book ha- deals with this tension th- throughout that you have that convivencia or that, you know, intercommunal living. But, you know, for the Muslims who first arrive, this is, as you said, a, a frontier. It's a space of, of war. But then the same thing happens with the Normans where you have this period of the Norman um, synthesis. synthesis, the Norman synthesis. But then it ends with a, an expulsion. It ends with the complete erasure of um, Muslim culture from visible life in Sicily. And I end my book, actually, with the example of Lucera, when Frederick II had this brilliant idea to yeah. go bring, to protect the Muslims, you know, and the Jews from the marauding Normans and the northern peoples, the Germanic peoples that were coming down from, from mainland Italy and crossing over. Um, that he was a protector, but at the same time, one has to remember that why they were brought there. So there's that other side of the coin. So to think about Frederick II as being this great kind of cultural, you know, culturally open kind of visionary is is not quite the same. You got, right. I mean, not, it's not the total picture. You got to, you have to understand that he was acquiescent to kind of more um, nefarious forces that were going on in history at the time. 
the, the, the uh, Jews of Muslim Sicily, by the way, were the last Arabic-speaking um, peoples in Europe um, before the modern period. So what about the legacy of Muslim Sicily today? For Bill Granara, it starts in Sicily. One of the things that I'm mildly interested, I mean, I'm very interested in, but I haven't written about much, is, is contemporary Sicilian, Sicilian-Italian literature. People like Leonardo Sciascia and Gesualdo Buffalino, and there's a guy named um, uh, Giuseppe Bonaveri, who I talk about at the end of my book. And they have their, their stories sometimes, and they're like short stories and stuff in which this is kind of of a, of a mythical imagining of Sicily being a place once upon a time that had people by the name of Muhammad and Jufa and these different kinds of characters. A lot of it is historically, uh, again, not accurate, but it's potent for its poetics in the sense that, and I read Sicilians drawing upon this as a way to differentiate themselves with the mainland. It's an anti-mainland thing more than it is an embrace of, 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 of um, their Islamic past, but they do recognize it. They do have a sense that the Muslims were here and that Sicily is a part of, um, the, was a part of the Muslim world, or I should say it this way, Islam and Arabs are part of a long historical um, Sicilian continuum uh, or that, that goes on. Um, you don't, I don't think you find that as much in Spain. In Spain now you get it academically. You know, all the way up until the, you know, very recently, there were, um, you know, Spanish historians, modern historians that said that this just didn't happen. Mm. Christ, you go to Alhambra, and it's like, you know, it's all right there. It's, it's, all, it's all there for you to see. But um, in Sicily, it's, it's, it's more subtle, but the Sicilians accept it, again, as, as, as I say, the Arabs being part of their own history. It, it's what makes... Sicilians, not Romans, and not Milanese, and yeah. not Florentines, and not Neapolitans. Sicily is a combination of a space and a time, maybe a, what, you know, Bertine is called the chronotope, uh, the intrinsic connection between space and time, that Sicily is a space and a time for something that's quite different and quite unique, um, and that um, they celebrate it. The memory of Convivencia in Sicily really matters today because the island is at the center of Italy's political battles over migration. If you visit Palermo, you'll find a city center that is arguably being revitalized by migrants from Bangladesh, Nigeria, and other countries in Africa and Asia. But Italian public opinion on immigration has been divided in past years as people making the dangerous journey across the Mediterranean find a back door into Europe through Italy. Lampedusa, an island belonging to Sicily, is one of the closest European islands to the North African coast. There's a strong Christian consciousness in the modern period. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the populist Sicilian reaction that these people are Arabs and they're Muslims and they're terrorists and keep them away. And then there are your more enlightened Sicilians say, look, these are people that, you know, with whom we shared a Mediterranean lake you know, for millennia, and um, they are really part of who we are. 
So again, but that brings up the whole question that that re, that that kind of replicates the whole historical process of war and peace. Right, that, that, you're, that, you're that, seeing that, an that echo. That's right, and that theme of right. living with the right. contradiction. Right. The coexistence also involves right. mutual conflict. You know, and in, in, in a couple of things, if you go to little towns like Chefalu and, um, and, and the West, more in the West, and in uh, Trapani and places, you go in these little side streets and you see these beautiful little um, gates on the door where you have a kind of an arabesque kind of tile work, and a lot of them are um, little restaurants that's, that, 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 that the specialty is couscousou, Trapanese, which is the national dish of the West, and it's a couscous, and you have places that celebrate in different kinds of um, of, of of what you would call Arabic uh, kinds of cooking. Uh, there's something called macaroni con le sarde, which is cooked with, you know, it's sweet and sour. It's cooked with grapes and things. So there is a there is a kind of a a consciousness or a, or an attempt to preserve what they see as being their, you know, their their Arab heritage or their 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 Eastern heritage. And again, the thing that separates them from um, from being um, mainland. Um, that's all very there. It's all very part of um, you know. Again, the, the the Sicilian persona, the Sicilian identity. But there was a celebration in that. There was a celebration in the kind of the material life. Um, of the island and the Arabs, you know, they, they made it their home. And this is where I think Sicilians would really um, take pride in that. That a Phoenician or a Roman or a Greek or a Roman, blah, 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 all these different people would come here and then it's not like they're changing the land, it's the land that's changing them. To a modern Sicilian um, or to a a Sicilian who thinks about all of this history. It's our island that made the Arab become a Sicilian. It's not the Arabic or Islam that made Sicily Muslim or Islamic. It's the other way around. A lot of what you hear and read about Muslim Sicily is really about something else. And in the course of my own reading and listening to Professor Granara's commentary, I was struck by the extent to which Muslim Sicily has been turned into an almost fictional space outside of time. Still, there are a lot of good takeaways about continuities in the history of the Mediterranean that Muslim Sicily brings into relief. I think in many ways Muslim Sicily is, a, is one of those outstanding Mediterranean history projects. You know, if you really want to understand the Mediterranean and all of its complexity and all of its contradictions, Muslim Sicily is a very discreet history. It's only 400 years. Um, I still swear that Ibn Khaldun wrote his five cycles of history because he, he saw Muslim Sicily rise. He knew when it started and he knew when it fell, so he had hindsight and that's when he did his five cycles. And I think that's how what we now know of Sicily a problem that were written by Arab historians, they saw the same thing. So it's a lesson of history in some ways. And, um, and I think that today the modern Sicilians still see it as that way. It's a time and a place when Sicily was at the forefront of the world. And again, these guys acted Sicilian. That uh, Ibn so-and-so was a Sicilian, just the way that uh, 
you know, Menyakis could be a Greek name or whatever, you know, or the French, the Norman, and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. Ajiska could become Sicilian. After all, Robert, uh, Roger II became a Sicilian. Um, he was, right. you know. The Normans became that's Sicilians. Right. That's right. So. Well, Bill, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you very much, Chris, for having me. It was my pleasure. Yeah, likewise. And uh, all best to you and hope to see you in Palermo sometime. <laughs> You've been listening to the Ottoman History Podcast interview with William Granara about his work on the book Narrating Muslim Sicily. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for more about the book, a short bibliography for further reading, a few images, and links to all the audio used in this episode. You can also find a link to our Patreon account, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support the continued development of our program a massive labor of love involving a team of more than a dozen regular contributors. Shout out to some of our new patrons, Yamur Karaja, Taha Faridi, Catherine Turney, Alev Komili, Orion Fischella, Maggie Sager, Jen Ting, and Randy Har. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. And stay with us a few more minutes to hear about how Bill Granara got into studying Muslim Sicily in the first place. Before, before you go, can I ask you, um, how'd you end up studying this? How'd you get so interested in Muslim Sicily? What brought you to the topic? Well, I, I started studying Arabic um, as an undergraduate at Georgetown, and um, I came to Muslim Sicily in my third or fourth year of graduate school, not as an undergraduate. And the strange thing is, is that I was at University of Pennsylvania. A friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go on an archaeological dig with his department as a job as a cook. I had nothing to do one summer, so I went to Libya and I hung out with Italians, um, the Italian cook and the Italian community of archaeologists in, in, in eastern Libya, what they call the Green Mountain area. And um, I just, it, it occurred to me that I really wanted to be back in the Mediterranean and this was really something that uh, got me Wait, started. Wait, you were working as a cook on an archaeological dig in Libya. Yeah. And when met, was this? This was in 1977. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. What I was surprised about was that, you know, Libya was an Italian colony and they had a very brutal history. Yeah. But the ease with which the Italian community, the archaeological community, worked with the local community that kind of day-to-day -day affection, the hugging and the kissing that they did was very different from the, the way the Americans dealt right. with the Libyans. It was almost like this British thing. But there is a kind of a Mediterranean, I, I, I don't want to overemphasize it, but there is something that, 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 that is um, profoundly Mediterranean. And I think in many ways...